I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Linda Neri and Rosanna Hu, founders of the Shanghai-based architecture and design practice Neri and Hu. Before establishing their practice in Shanghai, both Lyndon and Rosanna studied architecture at UC Berkeley in California, where they met. And although both Lyndon and Rosanna identify as Chinese, Lyndon was born in the Philippines and Rosanna was born in Taiwan. And it's in these two countries, as well as in the U.S., where they spent their formative years before moving to China to start their practice. It's not surprising then that Neri and Hu's work is infused with this question of nostalgia, literally a longing for home, and we started the conversation on this point. Among other things, we also talked about the necessary agility of their practice, which early on became known for their furniture and industrial design before they were able to win larger architecture commissions. We also touched on their role as reluctant cultural ambassadors for China and their experience as Chinese architects in re-examining notions of history and cultural memory through their work. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. this term reflective nostalgia that comes up again and again in talks you've given and more recently was also the theme of a studio you led at Harvard I think it was last year yes I'm just curious if you could if you could unpack that term for me and tell me what it is exactly that you're exploring with it Uh, sure Um, obviously if you've heard um, what Svetlana Boim talked about the difference between reflective and restorative nostalgia. Uh, Restorative nostalgia is to mimic history. Uh, A certain, we like to use the word disnification to a point where in experience um, and ideology being repeated as opposed to celebrating the essence of the past, uh, oftentimes Nostalgia is seen as regressive, but Sabatlana argues that there's actually a way of looking at nostalgia uh, through reflective uh, vein, uh, reflective lens uh, to understand the essence of the past, uh, not necessarily mimicking it, yearning to go home, not necessarily getting home, but understanding the essence of what home is and what it entails and what it means is actually a very powerful tool. Because this really, to me, sounds like a kind of soul-searching 
that is so relevant to both of your biographies and also your relationship to material culture generally, but then Chinese culture specifically. I want to talk more about that question in a bit, and especially the way it relates to um, this idea of adaptive reuse that um, defines a lot of the work uh, your practice has done. But before we get there, I feel like we just need to quickly chart the trajectory from Berkeley via Princeton back to or to Shanghai for the first time, where, uh, where you are now. And so, Lyndon, you studied at Harvard. Rosanna, you studied at Princeton um, after Berkeley. And then you both worked at Michael Graves? Yes. Um, I think for around 10 years? Uh, Lyndon, 10 years. I, okay. I worked much less, about five, maybe. Hmm. And there was one project uh, in that office that brought you to China. Uh, near the end of your time at Michael Graves, renovating a, a historic building on the Bund in Shanghai. And I'm just, I'm curious as to um, how you made the decision to, sh to stay in Shanghai after that and establish a design practice in that city. So what was uh, difficult for me, obviously we had three kids and they were very young at that time. Um, one was five, one was three and uh, Zachariah was just born. We struggled with it. Um, and then the client says, I said, look, I, I will go if um, you fly the whole family over. Um, so it was a very simple request thinking that by doing this, they'll say no. Well, um, during that time, Matthew and you are a lot younger, so you probably don't use the fax machine. We use the fax machine. So within minutes, uh, the response with a signature came back um, with a whole package that the senior partner at that time of Michael's office had proposed, and they all agreed to um, the proposal. Um, it went from six weeks to 10 weeks. SARS came, it became three months, it became four months. 10 months later, I was still in Shanghai. And so at that time, I realized, well, if I have to go back and do all these traveling, um, it'll be very difficult, um, especially with three young kids. Um, so. I had suggested to Rosanna that, um, and, and also having seen the dynamism that's going on here in the city, uh, especially with product design, it's not so much architecture, architecture were just high rises and we didn't really have that capability uh, to do high rises. Um, even now, I don't think we do. Um, and so we were um, just, I was just so um, enamored by all the products and the furnitures that were being made here, European products. And I've gone to maybe over a hundred factories from metal factories to, you know, upholstery to wood. And, and I was really fascinated that uh, China was truly the world's manufacturing plant. And I, I saw that opportunity and I was kind of, I, I was afraid if I go to the US that I would lose all that, uh, that continuity. And so uh, Rosanna and I talked and, um, yeah, it was, it was not really planned. So we decided to go back, sell our house, pack our bags, and um, come to this city that we now call home. I just have to underscore how insane it must have been to relocate to a new city in a, a new country um, with three small children and in the midst of all that, be setting up your own practice. <laughs> um, 
Like it's making me feel anxious on your behalf. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel bad for Rosanna because I think Rosanna took the bulk of kind of the, the pressure probably. I was just, I'm, I'm just, you know, Matthew, a delusional individual. I always think of the, the bright side. Rosanna always finds the problems, tells me, look, this is, you have to get yourself set in reality. I, I'm always a dreamer. So um, it is true. Now looking back, absolutely, it was insane. Uh, we rented a place. I still remember Zachariah was four months old. Hannah was three years three years old, and Zachariah uh, Jeremiah was five. Um, it was also important for us to that they speak Chinese. Um, that to us was paramount. Um, and so that combined with the energy that we were in the past ten months. And the opportunity. When I talk about opportunity, it's crazy because there was really no opportunity. Well, that's what I wanted to. I wanted to ask you about that because at the beginning, uh, you mentioned elsewhere that there wasn't really any architecture commissions coming in, and so you had to find another way uh, of practicing. And it, it began with product design, yes. industrial design, furniture design, and this was in part based on your experience. I think working with Michael Graves and the fact that. Uh, that practice is also known for um, design at different scales. I mean, from urban planning down to um, the design of door handles. Um, and you'd been asked <clears throat> by the client on the Gray's project to design furniture or to procure furniture from abroad, which couldn't arrive in time. And therefore you had to design your own. With Michael's client at that time, we had to do a lot of custom furnitures for all the restaurants for three in the mind. And it was that experience that allowed me to see the immense uh, opportunity of China. Um, I don't know what that opportunity was. I just knew that there was something there. I, I knew that there was gold somewhere. I just didn't know where it was. Um, and when we didn't have any projects, so what we did was I we kind of unearth and start sketching cups and spoons and forks and glasses. Uh, we, to this day, we have a stockpile of drawings. Um, and I just went around different people uh, pitching the idea of having this new Chinese brand, um, perhaps understanding Chinese accessories or Chinese um, objects in a different way uh, that is not offered um, outside of the Western context. So it was a very simple uh, ideology. I must have gone to six or seven different people. Um, some thought we, I was so outlandish and absolutely crazy, but there were a few that actually took interest uh, in, in our kind of naive uh, interests and in the idea of representing New China. Um, and so we did that. We didn't have any project. It took us another six months. I still remember 2004, a whole year went by. Uh, we came back, a whole year went by, maybe September. Someone came to me and asked me if I was interested in doing an interior project. Uh, I still remember that project because the fee was extremely low. So while we were doing this, we had uh, a few investors uh, who were interested. And, and so we start playing with it. Um, and to, to this day, we have a separate company. Uh, it's, it's called Design Republic. I think you're probably familiar with it. It's a design store uh, that really came from our initial 
interest in products uh, and the making of things. Um, our studio now designed for many uh, European brands. That's from Nearing Who, uh, from our architectural office. Um, so one thing just led to another and we start taking on an interior project. And when we won a lot of awards with that yoga studio, all of a sudden people start calling us to do restaurants, to do their house interior and some of them very small project. And at that time, we were very hungry. I had to th feed three kids. So I, I was not, um, I was not very picky. Hmm. I just want to understand a little more about how Design Republic uh, was conceived as a, as a company. And then also your involvement with Stellar Works. And then also your design contributions to other established design houses. Like there's, there's quite a multivalent um, uh, product design practice um, across these different platforms. And, and, and Matthew, let, let me clarify this by saying that we don't sit down on weekends and strategize what's going to happen in five years, what's going to happen in 10 years. Uh, people often think that Lyndon and Rosanna, you guys are really strategic. You sit down and you really think what's, what is up five years or 10 years. We don't. Uh, we're really organ organic. Uh, we're interested in the things we like to do. Um, Design Republic started with the idea of bringing the best uh, of the world to China. And in the process, hopefully one day to bring the best of China back to the world. So that, that was a very simple um, ideology. Um, and yes, it started based on a need. We needed to furnish some of the furniture. Uh, so we had to, um, for our clients, and so we had hired people to take care of shipping and all these. And Design Star Republic started with the idea that perhaps we can create this new Chinese brand. Um, but in the process of hiring many people to take care of all the logistics of all the imported furniture that that's going to be in our project, we realized, wait a minute, you know, there is a potential of using that same time frame and making it a store, a store that uh, perhaps represents some of the best products that we believed in. Not necessarily just the famous name, but names that, you know, people might not know. And at that time, people didn't really know Tom Dixon. People didn't really know uh, Marcel Wonders. Um, you know, people didn't really know what who Jasper Morrison was. Forget Akil Castiglione. And, and we were fascinated with all these and sort of, so we decided, why not? Let's plunge and have a store. But again, when we did the store, it was really not from a business point of view. We were more interested in having this kind of cultural platform. So we would have lectures, we would fly people over, or the brands would fly them over. People like Konstantin Grichek, uh, you know, people like Marcel Wonders, Tom Dixon, they would give a lecture. Uh, and our premise behind all that is that you cannot be selling your product. You should be lecturing and give a, a certain cu cultural construct to what is behind your product. And yes, the last five minutes, maybe if you really want to sell, sure. Um, it's incredibly shrewd, though, as a as a strategy. Actually, there is something very intentional about the way that, at least in the early days of Design Republic, it was operating as a business. Because it seems like um, what what you're doing, what you and Rosanna are doing, is trying to tweak existing value systems in the world of design by um, inviting in established names to uh, 
to a venue based in China, and then ultimately situating Chinese design beside that to kind of restructure the way people look at design coming out of China. And so the, this notion of something being made in China, which historically has always been, or has, you know, for the past, I don't know, 30 or 40 years been pejorative, becomes a, becomes a kind of elevated um, mark. And I think, I don't know if you agree with that, like it, if the, the strategy to me there is so interesting and so clear as well, it's not, um, I don't imagine it's something that happened accidentally. Yeah, it's it's inter it's interesting that my my father my father if you use the word should my father would be very proud of. <laughs> Interestingly enough, that you should say that, and a lot of people say the same thing. It can't be intentional. Um, for us, <laughs> there's a number of things we love products. Don't get me wrong. In fact, we had so many so few products in the beautiful store full of concrete. And we decided we were doing a lot of interior projects that were so colorful and we couldn't really do what we wanted. So our own store, we decided we could now finally do raw steel and concrete. So we did that. And we decided uh, much to uh, our investors surprise that we only had about eight products in the store when it could really have 50 or 70 products. Instead of Conrad, the mood board that we had shown them, the possibility of having a Conrad in Shanghai, we made, we turned it into a museum. And I still remember a group of people wanting to come and buy the John Pawson bench, which is in my house, by the way. I told Rosanna, I'm not selling this piece. This is for me. Um, and uh, Rosanna's like, then how are we going to survive if we're not going to sell all these pieces? So for the next I would say few months, if you see the numbers that were coming in, it's shocking that we're actually, we've survived it all uh, because the numbers were so low. People were so shocked at modern furniture. How could it be so expensive to have all these minimal, I mean, now looking back 15 years later, you look at hay, you look at end tradition, you look at all these Scandinavian pieces. It was, it's now all of a sudden people understand, but during that time, try bringing hay and end tradition over. People probably think you're a crook, uh, that you are just a glorified IKEA and make it color and charging people 10 times the price. And yet we kept on it. We continue to have lessons. We can, in fact, we have a magazine called Manifesto and we start promoting EAMS, what EAMS stands for. And it was in many ways a dissertation of perhaps a continuation of, uh, of our interest in school. And we used that as a platform uh, to kind of express because there was in many ways at that time a lack of discussion even within the design community. And so this, this discourse allows me and Rosanna to be pseudo-academic perhaps in an environment void of it at that time. And it kind of provoked us to have our own argument, our own writing, our own challenges. We wrote a book called Persistence of Vision. I don't know if you've seen it, where we interviewed 50 architects. You don't need to be Chinese. You could be a foreigner. You could be young. You could be old. You could be famous, non-famous. Uh, the idea is you should be practicing in Shanghai. And that Persistence of Vision, we asked them 10 questions. Of course, a lot of them then say, well, Lenin and Rizna, you should also answer these 10 questions. And so it's filmed. And did that book make money? Absolutely not. But it, it actually allowed us, um, in many ways, fill that cultural gap that was we, we were thirsting for. There was a lot of commercial activities. There were a lot of commercial opportunities. But 
museums, gallery, ideologies, conversation, all that were considered frivolous, probably at the time. I saw Jesus on the cross on a hill called Calvary. Do you hate mankind for what they've done to you? He said, talk of love, not he. Things to do is getting late. I've so little time and I'm only passing through. Passing through, passing through. Sometimes happy, sometimes blue. Glad that I ran into you. Tell the people that you saw me passing through. Come a little closer, friend. I saw. And so, Narian, who became the kind of cultural impresarios. Um, ushering in Western design culture to a Chinese audience and consumer base. And I think that that tightrope is so interesting to me that um, on the one hand, this is um, like a rich intellectual pursuit and cultural pursuit. And then on the other, it is um, to some degree a kind of marketing tool. And it's, it's so often difficult to pry those two things apart. Um, I guess just holding on to that point for a moment and talking more about this idea of like cultural exchange, you're also kind of cultural ambassadors to the world and like have increasingly been involved in um, design <laughs> fairs abroad. And most recently, Rosanna, I'm hearing a chuckle from you. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to, there's one particular event that made me think of what it means to be, um, oh, to be a kind of, design diplomat in a way. And this happened in um, Stockholm, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Was it last year? Two, where two you years were ago, guest, Two years ago, you were a guest of honor and uh, had designed a, a large pavilion um, for the fair. And um, the story came out that you were astonished at the, the lack of quality in the way <laughs> The, you read that the pavilion in Zine, was. Right? I did scene. read it in Dazine. Um, the lack of quality in the way the pavilion was constructed, and that, in fact, um, like, in some ways, the standard was lower than it would have been if it was built in China. And you can sense that there is. I mean, there's a really clear uh, critique and frustration. I think uh, that's coming out in statements like that at the way that. Um, Chinese manufacturing production is perceived internationally and trying to turn that on its head and make a news story out of it. Can you just tell me a little more about that experience and also this, this notion of being a, an ambassador uh, for design and culture in China? Sure, I think um, the behind the scenes of, of that, um, that scenario um, and what are well, what some might call a PR crisis um, was uh, Marcus, Marcus and us, we were in, or Marcus, I think he was the moderator for a talk. Uh, so this is Marcus Fairs. Marcus Fairs. Uh, Editor-in-Chief yeah, of the Yeah, and we were, uh, I think we, we were talking to him just in private in the dressing room um, about 
kind of complaining about the quality of the construction, which is absolutely true. Um, and at that time, we were very, very frustrated because it was like the day before the show uh, was about to open and we couldn't get very, very simple things um, rectified. Um, you know, simple things like the wood, um, the wood, the wood pieces have been uh, painted a black color, and then we found that there were like um, labels. Labels of the wood. So yeah, there were like the labels, glue labels uh, of you know prices, price tags, and whatever were mm -hmm. still on the wood, and they just painted over them. And we probably made a remark like, you know, even in China, they don't do things uh, in this sloppy way. And but that was like a conversation we had with Marcus in private and then uh, I think I remember Lyndon waking up the next morning he was reading Disney and then he saw his own quote and so he immediately <laughs> called Marcus and he's like Marcus like why are you printing this <laughs> um, and I think they took it down or they they changed that the headline because the headline was was uh, was, was quite outrageous something like yeah you know, they, were, they were upset yeah or, oh, they, they were threatening to pull out, uh, something like that. For us, it was like a moment of heat, uh, in just being really angry at um, not, not being able to have a, have a perfectly constructed mm. booth. But also, uh, I think, uh, in all fairness, a lot of people immediately made comments, um, if, if you look closely, and we didn't even bother responding. The immediate reaction was, oh, the drawings must not be clear. Immediately, there was Chinese bashing in that uh, the drawings must not be complete. They must not have shop drawings. They might not understand detail. What people didn't understand is for that particular booth, we had 80 pages of a working drawing, much more than any of the uh, visiting um, people that have done in the last couple of years. So we were very thorough. We had someone there. We flew someone over 10 right. days before to monitor the site. I'm just, it's so, um, to me, exciting in a way to, to witness that indignation, um, be, especially having seen an interview at another Swedish design fair that a moderator had conducted uh, a couple years before then, where I felt like some of the questions were so, um, they lacked real insight into, into contemporary Chinese design and culture. I guess the, the line of questioning seemed to be focused almost exclusively on stereotypes. Um, and so then for you to come back now and critique um, the, the uh, the way a pavilion was manufactured in a Western country, it just seems so a continuation of this kind of bristling or frustration or indignation at the way in which contemporary Chinese uh, architecture and design is, is understood abroad. What was interesting uh, at that time was a lot of our Swedish architects friends and basically told us, said, now you understand our frustration. Uh, it was interesting because <laughs> Serhab is not common knowledge or they're very good at kind of masking this problem that they have. Uh, and then all of a sudden, a lot of our European friends, counterparts, some of which are quite famous designers and architects, then start writing us saying, we completely agree with you. Um, and it is interesting that it took us to voice this out, perhaps accidentally. And 
I, I think even New York Times, when they come to the US, I mean, when they come to China, they come to our office. Um, and oftentimes, and, and, and many of the media in the West, they would come to the office and the common refrain is, oh, it's too beautiful for China. They look at the Waterhouse and they say, oh, this could be perfectly for Berlin or New York. But Shanghai? And I often ask this question, why not? Um, and so they like to report on the big, ugly boxes that is commonly feed, uh, fed to the Western um, communities to, in many ways, augment that belief of that stereotype you're talking about. So, you know, it's, it's very hard to see coverage with the exception of architecture magazines, the more trade-oriented uh, magazines. If you go to the mass media, you don't hear of vector architects, open architecture, uh, standard architecture. I mean, all these are amazing Chinese architectural practices. And yet you don't hear much of them outside of the architectural interior or product design trade. A very limited group of people that understand. If you go to the mass media, they will only see a, a bigger Ikea, a bigger Walmart. You know, the building that collapsed because it was made, it was all built in 10 days. The brick that fell on someone's head, that sells news. So th these kind of um, messages is, is very dangerous. And are we ambassadors? I think I am trying to answer a lot of many questions that you're dealing with. There, there was this question that says we're reluctant ambassadors. To a certain extent, we are, uh, because we're not there trying to fight, um, because China is a big country. And are there copies? Yes, absolutely. Are there people who are doing mediocre work? Absolutely. Are there people who just want bigger and more bling things? Absolutely. All we're saying is let's balance this. There are people who are passionate about culture and history. There are people who are actually passionate about details. There are people who are passionate about making beautiful things. And Perhaps by us being so insistent in the fact that we don't copy and we despise people who copy and we preach that uh, relentlessly, not just in schools, but in our practice, um, all of a sudden people see us as ambassador. Uh, but in many ways, we're just trying to be ourselves, trying to be, trying to do good to the design community. I wondered if we could just quickly touch on um, this idea of adaptive reuse as it applies to the Waterhouse project, which I see as a lodestar for navigating Nurian Hu's views on history and memory. And just to kind of give you a, um, a bit of um, forewarning as to where I would hope this conversation would go, I think what I'm curious about uh, are the politics of memory and the question of how history is confronted in China today and what the architect's role is in fostering cultural memory in China and, and then understanding the fact that uh, Nari and Hu are to some extent taking on this role of, of cultural ambassadors. I can imagine there's a lot of um, weight you carry uh, in addressing this idea of history in China. So let's begin with the Waterhouse Project and hopefully we arrive at at those more difficult questions. Um, yeah, let me take a stab on this by uh, also 
um, maybe answering some of your earlier comments uh, about being a cultural ambassador and strategic and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it isn't until like now, I would, you know, 15 years, 16 years later, um, and also in retrospect, um, do we gain a privileged view of what really happened uh, over, the, over the last 16 years? Um, I think now you, you, uh, you, you look at all the work that has been um, finished and even we might sometimes think, wow, that's pretty strategic, isn't it? But in fact, uh, th there's really never any strategy. There was no business plan. There was no, um, you know, 16 years ago um, when we moved here from Princeton, and I don't know how well you know America, uh, if and and if you know what Princeton represents, and, and you know what kind of an area that is. When you move uh, a family of you know five with three young kids, one of them is a four months old baby. Uh, it was really shocking to a lot of our neighbors in Princeton. And you know, I remember being asked by one of my best friends at the time, whom. Uh, also, uh, who lived next door had a beautiful house, and she said, "How can you, how can you bring, how can you raise three kids in China? Um, how can you bring a newborn baby to China? Um, like, how are you going to live?" And I remember thinking, like, they have babies in China too, you know, they have, <laughs> they, they they raise kids too in China. And so, 16 years ago, China was a very very different place, um, and. And that's why there was no strategy because I don't think anyone could have foreseen all the all the development that had happened over the past 15 years. And in, in many ways that the reason why we are kind of playing this reluctant role uh, is also kind of the 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 kind of bridging um, function that we have served over the past 15 years, you know, given our unique background, um, uh, both culturally and linguistically and, and architecturally, you know, we, we, we feel like we're a bridge between many, many things. And that's why um, the word threshold uh, is really important for us because we, we feel like we're, you know, playing on many levels, this threshold, this cultural threshold, this uh, also generational threshold, you know, between the older generation and the younger, um, and also disciplinarian, you know, interacting, uh, crossing many different disciplines. Um, so I, yeah, so I think, I think that uh, that brings us to where we are now. Um, and then in terms of the cultural heritage and uh, the politics of memory, um, when we when we worked on Waterhouse, we just we just felt it, it was quite intuitive. Uh, for us to uh, to to design the renovation of uh, the water house that way, very few things were very clear to us. But it was intuitively we felt um, we felt like we wanted to preserve something that the client wanted to take down. The client uh, specifically wanted us to demolish uh, what was there. And I remember Lyndon and I, the very first uh, site visit, we walked around the the building, and and it, we were really excited by by this this relic uh, that you know the 
a lot of the spaces had like no ceiling. Uh, it, you know, the walls uh, were kind of crumbling down. Uh, a lot of staircases, like you, you know, you go up, have a step, and then and then it doesn't go anywhere. There's staircases that lead to nowhere. So these kind of conditions, we were just really quite excited by that spatial uh, experience, exploring, you know, on this cultural relic or the urban relic, and mm -hmm. and we said to each other, you know what, this is the this is exactly how we want um, a a traveler who comes to Shanghai to experience. So why don't we just keep part of it as is? So so that was like a moment of um, what it is today. Mm. And just to be clear, this is a former Japanese army headquarters building yes. from the 1930s that was right. converted into a, a hotel with a lot of the original structure um, exposed or um, um, I guess left in an unrenovated state. No, we were we we reinforced them, and uh, mm -hmm. when you talk about red, actually a lot of them were treated with a certain condition so that they would not continue to crumble. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was this incisive notion of restoration, but more from not fixing it but healing it. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not about replace. Sorry, it's not about repairing them but fixing, fixing them. them. It's uh, almost like it's been preserved or frozen in time. Moments uh, of it, but there's also parts of it. Yes, parts of it. But, but there's also it. a lot of new, new things mm -hmm. um, in it. And um, I still remember one of the clients because there were two. One was from Singapore, and one was from Shanghai. And the Singaporean was more open-minded. Um, mm -hmm. He had a lot of experience with old and new, but he had to rely on this Chinese client who wanted to just demolish everything. And um, well, as architects at that time, that remember that was our first architectural project. Um, mm -hmm. By then, we've only done a lot of interior project. Um, and so we were kind of eager to go, sure, why not, if he really wants to demolish it. But then he said, look, I want it to look like Mayfair. I want it to look like uh, a brick, English brick uh, building. And that really made me realize. And I turned to Rosanna, I was like, we, we have to do whatever it takes to keep this. Otherwise, a part of this history along the uh, uh, Huangpu River will go. Right. And so a lot of us, it's about resisting um, total novelty and acknowledging uh, a sense of cultural heritage and memory as well. And so the big question for me is that if we take this approach as um, indicative of the way that generally you look at architecture or you look at the the making of architecture today in China. I wonder, like, how do you confront history in China as an architect? How do you foster cultural memory? What particular memories are you holding on to and which ones are you letting go of? I mean, the, the sense of um, cultural erasure that coincided with the Cultural Revolution, for example, I'm, I imagine must be such a difficult part of the country's past that architects are contending with now? And I mean, this is a really blunt question, but like, how do you address that? Uh, one project at a time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it's also to not, um, to, to not presume that we could really do more than just, you know, the projects that 
that we are privileged to to work on. Um, but and it, it's interesting that you you termed this um, this series of questions um, that I think politics of a memory. Uh, the politics actually didn't come afterwards. Um, now, when we uh, when we hear of other you know people come to us and talk about their um, their reaction to Waterhouse and uh, especially a lot of the officials, uh, for example, you know the urban uh, urban planning uh, commission uh, people or some government officials from the district, um, they 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 would tell us the the effects it had on their consciousness and their understanding of what preservation meant. Because I think before that, um, preservation meant to recreate history. Um, and, and the government spent a lot of effort doing that to you know, bring things back to how it used to be 30, 40 years ago. Um, you know, taking photographs and then kind of re replastering everything like Disneyland. And, and we saw really, really bad iterations of that kind of effort. And that's why we really didn't want to, we didn't want to do that. Um, so, so, they're, so they're able to see in Waterhouse a, uh, just a, a totally new and fresh way of um, treating history from a, from a design perspective? I, I think if you spent, that's a very good question, Matthew. I think if you spend a lot of time trying to uh, fight the system and think to yourself that you can change, change it, you will fail. I believe in that. I, I think it's going to be very hard. So instead what I do is, or what we did was leading by example. And, and what did we do when, when I said leading by example? By proposing that idea to Waterhouse, we risked losing that commission from a client, not so much a Singaporean client because he understood, Peng understood, but the Chinese client wanted a glamorous hotel. He likes the idea of a boutique hotel, but he, his perception of a boutique hotel at that time was a glamorous um, hotel. Second, um, when we opened, we lost two huge projects. Clients that saw that realized we're not the architects for them. I was really depressed. And so when I said leading by example, you have to be willing to take risks at the expense of losing your project, that particular project you're working on, at the expense of losing two other big projects that we were working on, right? Those are the sacrifice you have to make for a conviction that you believed in. And we believed it so much that we're, Rosanna and I are very critical to each other. In fact, we, were, we just came back from a site and Rosanna was so critical of some of the things that I missed. And, and I was depressed. I, I was really truly depressed because she was right. And I sat there, I was rather emotional. Tears came down. Uh, my face because I knew I was that frustrated. My son had to comfort me, uh, realizing that I was actually in a lot of pain. But that was needed. That jolt was needed to make me realize that it's one project at a time. And you cannot expect that your last project 
what's gone is is going to define you and you're set for life no there are different groups of people and even the groups of people that have worked with you they could be very complacent and perhaps working till eight or nine o'clock might not be good for them anymore and and they, they they might not have that energy anymore and and yet we're still very tortured individual we still look at every detail we still look at every project um and and I believe by doing that, eventually, by leading that life and willing to take on those risks involved, people will see what you really believed in. And so we're given a lot of projects more than we actually could handle. Last year, we got over 400 requests. We took 12 projects out of 400 uh, requests. This year, we're over 500 requests despite COVID. I'm not saying that to brag, but people do know that if every project, we actually take it very seriously. Uh, and, and when we can't do it, no matter how exciting the project is, some of the projects we take, the fees are so low because we do believe in the, 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 the dreams and the ideology of the client. Mm. And if it's aligned with us and their understanding, and there will be a group of people that starts to change um, the community at large. It's not just us. It's a group of people. And I believe um, one day at a time, one project at a time, as Rosanna is saying, and we are not saying that what we're doing is perfect at all. In fact, we're not trying to be critical with what we did with Waterhouse. We're not trying to condemn other people. We're not trying to, it's not this indignation that everything else is bad. We're just saying that perhaps there's another way of looking at preservation. There's another way. We're not sure if this is the correct way, but perhaps you can consider this. As a way of closing the conversation, I wondered if you could talk a bit about uh, what risks you're taking right now in your practice. It's also something that Lyndon and I have, have recently um, been reflecting on. And I, for one, definitely feel that in you know, in light of this so-called commercial success, maybe, I mean, not, not on the large scale, but definitely, you know, every year we have, like Lyndon said, uh, hundreds of requests for projects and we have to filter through them to find the right ones for us. And the right ones um, is not defined by fees um, at all. It's, it's defined by um, the, the kind of project that we feel we can exercise our potential and um and and kind of go beyond or be able to uh produce product projects that are um that have certain breakthroughs and so my personal fear i would say is the lack of time and um and and to kind of lose ourselves um lose our own vision uh amidst all this busyness because when we take on more projects unless we can um, really uh, you know stay stay on top of every detail and every process uh, and that includes uh, negotiating and um, you know uh, explaining things to the client so that they understand what it is that we want to do so that they will you know want to support the project so 
Um, every step of the way is, um, is, is crucial to the success of a project. And I find that sometimes we, if we lose control, then the end result is not what we want. And, and that's a big risk for me because it's our name on the project. So we've been talking about maybe taking fewer projects, making the office smaller so we can be, uh, we can continue to be a lot more hands-on. And um, given the different commitments that we have, and that includes teaching as well, and also running Design Republic, uh, there's so many things that we want to do. Um, I, yeah, I'm just really afraid that, you know, our, our pro the quality of our design work is going to suffer. That's a difficult point to end on. I guess I just want to thank Lyndon and Rosanna, both of you, for your time. It's, you've been really generous with it, and uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks thank again. you, Matthew. Thank you. Yeah, we really enjoy the questions as well. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce this show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Leonard Cohen. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Narian Hu, to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show, and a special thanks as well to the supporters on Patreon. If you like the show and want to be a supporter too, visit patreon.com forward slash scaffold to find out more. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D.
D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.